If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Since the toppling of the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol last weekend, Britain's involvement in the slave trade has come under intense scrutiny, with the future of many other monuments to slave traders now under review. In light of recent events, today's episode explores the history of Britain's role in transporting enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. Our guest is Krista Petley, who's Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Southampton, and also the author of several books on slavery in the British Empire, including most recently, White Fury, A Jamaican Slaveholder and the Age of Revolution, which was published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Krista spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. We're hearing a lot, or we have heard a lot about Britain's role in abolishing the slave trade. But I wonder if we could begin earlier and look at the origins. So when did Britain or its constituent nations begin trading in enslaved Africans? This is a a history that goes all the way back to the the 16th century. So 
characters like Jack Hawkins and Francis Drake start to get involved in trading for enslaved Africans and also slave raiding on the West African coast in the Elizabethan era. So it's something that has those sorts of roots uh, in in English history. But really, as a slave trading nation, uh, England and then Britain become very prominent in the trade later in the 17th century and into the 18th century. And the 18th century is really the height of the slave trade for Britain when it becomes the, the biggest slave trading nation. And uh, ports like Bristol and Liverpool become really, really substantial uh, ports on the, the basis of, uh, of slave trading. Where exactly were these African people being taken to and what kind of work were they being compelled to do when they arrived? This is really important because one of the things that tends to get conflated in conversations about uh, about slavery and the slave trade are those two things, slavery and the slave trade. And so it's not just about the, the trafficking of enslaved people from, from West Africa, but it's also important to think about, well, why were those people being taken, bought and sold and taken across the Atlantic? And they were going principally, in the British case, to the Caribbean. In the 17th century, it was Barbados as the main destination. In the 18th century, Jamaica. And the work that they were forced to do on arrival in those places principally was to produce sugar. Um, So vast sugar plantations that required the labour of of huge armies of enslaved people to plant, to tend and to harvest sugarcane for export from those British colonies back to Britain for consumption in Britain was the, the reason that that, that, uh, that people were being traded across the Atlantic. And you, you mentioned that Britain for a time was the predominant slave trading power. What kind of numbers of people are we talking about that Britain actually would have shipped across the Atlantic? So we know that through the whole of the history of the slave trade, somewhere approaching 13 million Africans were trafficked across the Atlantic um, in total. Um, that's, un- that's all nations. Um, and that group of people was the biggest group of migrants to the Americas before 1800. So enslaved Africans are extremely important as a migrant group crossing the Atlantic to people, American colonies in the Caribbean, Latin America, but also in North America. Uh, in terms of the British involvement, we know that more than three million of those Africans were transported on British ships. And um, just to illustrate that a bit further, um, through the whole of the the time that Jamaica was a British colony between 1655 and the ending of the slave trade in 1808, that a million people were trafficked across the Atlantic into that one British colony. Could we talk a little bit about the kind of conditions that these African people endured on the sea crossings? So the the crossing, otherwise known as the Middle Passage, is notorious for disease and for loss of life. And large numbers of people who were forced into the slave ships never made it across the Atlantic. The the figures would differ from ship to ship. And on on some ships where there's an outbreak of disease, the losses, um, the deaths could be really, really big. But about one in 10 of all of the people who embarked on a slave ship in West Africa were forced to embark, didn't make it across the Atlantic. So the the Middle Passage itself, that crossing, is a a really 
torturous, brutal and traumatic experience for those Africans forced to undertake it. Now, I wonder if we could look at why this was happening, because even if you set aside the the horrendous human cost of that, surely for the slave traders, these these people were valuable as an economic commodity. Why would they risk their health in this manner? They they were a valuable commodity, and um, especially towards the end of the slave trade, you hear slave traders talking about the, the ways in which they tried to keep enslaved Africans alive in the, in the Middle Passage, uh, and indeed regulations that are passed by Parliament to try to make the Middle Passage more humane and so that more uh, Africans survive it. Uh, but the brutal reality of this trade is that it was something that, that involved calculations about the number of Africans that one could afford to lose in the Middle Passage and still make a profit. So there was an acceptance that this is, this is dangerous, some people will die, but uh, slave traders tried to, to avoid deaths as far as they could, um, but at the same time needed to make a profit. And so they made this very callous calculation about how many people can be packed in so that we get enough people across the Atlantic to make a profit, which within those calculations would mean that there would be deaths. That was understood. That was part of the business. One way of looking at this is a business of institutionalised manslaughter. Back in Britain, who were the major players orchestrating the slave trade and to what extent was the state itself involved? So the state itself is involved right from the beginning. And, and in the 17th century, the, the 17th century into the early 18th century, there are lots of debates in Parliament about opening up the slave trade, allowing the independent traders to trade in enslaved people so that the, the monopoly held by the Royal African Company is abolished. And there's a, there's a lot of discussion and debate in Parliament about that. So it's, it's one of these things that is accepted as, as part and parcel of British overseas trade and that's regulated um, and deregulated in Parliament. Something that is discussed, supported, defended, by the British state um, for, for many, many years before the abolition debates about ending the slave trade and then eventually slavery come up at the end of the 18th into the beginning of the 19th century. I realise that this would have changed over time, but how many Britons would have had economic links to the slave trade? How embedded was it within the British economy? So there are there be prominent examples of people who are involved in in slave trading and also in in slavery and and there are increasing numbers of people who are directly invested in those things from the 17th through to the 18th century. So you've got prominent slave traders in Bristol and Liverpool uh, and and large numbers of of planters going from Britain out to the Caribbean and and, and even returning. So the Lord Mayor of London in the middle of the 18th century, a character called William Beckford, had made his fortune in Jamaica, where his family had huge slave plantations. So there are some really prominent examples of uh, 18th century Britons with direct investments in sugar and slavery. But it goes much further than that. Sugar from the 1740s all the way through to the 1820s is the biggest uh, overseas import into Britain. So this is a really, really important part of the imperial economy. And people are consuming it. The British sweet tooth develops uh, in this period. The taste for sweet things, cakes, scones, jam, all of that's tied up with 
the, the sugar that's produced by slaves that's arriving in Britain. So it's something that I think goes much further than just the people who are directly invested. It becomes folded into um, the British way of life. Beyond that, of course, the, the trade's taxed. So the exchequer is making money from the duties on imports of slave-produced commodities, uh, principally sugar, but there are other things rolling in from the colonies like cotton and tobacco that are produced by slaves as well. So it's something that has a really wide-ranging impact on, on Britain uh, through the 17th into the 18th century, not just slave traders and slaveholders, but it, it ripples out into the wider economy wider society. Now, this period also saw Britain rise in international prominence, wealth and status, with things like the Industrial Revolution going on. To what extent did the slave trade help fuel Britain's general overall economic rise at this time? It's really important to the British Empire in the 18th century. It's really significant to British wealth in the 18th century. There's considerable historical debate about the extent to which sugar and slavery underpin the Industrial Revolution itself. That's one of these things that's incredibly difficult to to pin down definitively. But it's absolutely, I think, inarguable that um, British wealth and British power in the 18th century uh, are heavily dependent on these overseas colonies, particularly in the Caribbean, which in the 18th century is the jewel in the crown of the British Empire. And it's something that's tied up not just with the the wider economy, but also with the defence of the country. So one of the things that slave traders argue when the abolitionists uh, challenge them is that uh, the Royal Navy is dependent heavily on overseas colonial trade. So in all sorts of different ways, the, the, the slave trade stimulates the British economy is a really important part of the, the wider British economy in the 18th century and, and has an influence and an importance beyond just the supply of sugar to the, to the domestic market. So nowadays, I, I think we all recognise the injustices and the horrors of the slave trade. During the period that it was in operation, though, were there many people in Britain who had similar opposition to it? Yeah, so... All through the 18th century, particularly from the middle of the 18th century, there are people in Britain who are expressing their opposition to uh, to the slave trade. I mean, notably, you have characters like Granville Sharp from the 1760s um, speaking out against slavery and the trade, and then a, a nationwide campaign that begins in the 1780s that uh, calls for the immediate abolition to the slave trade. But even before then, people are morally exercised by what's involved in slave trading and and slavery. Um, So even before you've got um, William Wilberforce becoming the figurehead of this great abolition movement in the 1780s, there are people in Britain who recognise that slavery and slave trading are morally questionable. And often they, they raise these doubts and concerns in relation to their to their religious uh, ideas. But yes, it's something that has a long history of, of, of opposition, uh, even before the rise of a big abolition movement. So you just mentioned how the, quite a lot of the abolitionists were motivated by their religious beliefs. But on the other side, how far was Christianity embedded in the pro-slavery argument as well? And how 
did deeply Christian people justify what they were doing to Africans? The, the slaveholders in the British case, it's a bit, a little bit different in the American South uh, later on, where you get lots of re- religious arguments in defence of slavery. British slaveholders do make religious arguments. They try to, at least, to, to defend what they're doing. But they're not renowned for being particularly religious people. Actually, the planters, that their reputation... Uh, which is well earned, is that they they don't really take much notice of religion. They, they they're not interested in church going, um, so they they do make some nominal religious arguments that try to counter the sorts of things that abolitionists are saying. But the main line of argument in defence of slavery and the slave trade is a practical one. When abolitionists challenge slaveholders, rather than try to defend slavery on religious or moral grounds, which was very difficult for them to do, they tried to do it instead on practical grounds. They said, look at how important this trade is economically. Look at how important this trade is to the strength of the Royal Navy. So they would make those kinds of arguments to try to defend their practices. And then on the subject of the racial aspect of the slave trade, do you think that it was racism that fueled the slave trade, or did slave traders become racist as a justification for what they were doing? It's a difficult question to answer because ultimately what's at stake with with slavery and the slave trade is is profit. So what these people are seeking is 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 money. And they find ways to make that money with enslaved labor. But they of course, particularly when challenged, have to find arguments that will justify what they're doing. And so very quickly you find arguments put together about why it is that Africans are particularly suited to the kind of uh, work that that they're being put to in the West Indies. And so all sorts of myths and lies are then propagated about the fact that Africans are intellectually inferior and so therefore um, they're uh, best suited to this kind of heavy manual labour, that they're in other ways physically uh, adapted to this kind of work. So racism and slavery go together, absolutely, hand in hand, um, precisely because these slaveholders find it useful to create arguments that allow them to justify to themselves and to others why it is that they're, that they're doing these, these things to, to other human beings to make money. Now, in 1807, Britain famously abolished the slave trade, although not slavery itself yet. What do you see as the major factors in this development? It's a really complicated process, abolishing the slave trade. And, of course, one of the the principal things that you'd point to is the abolition movement. It's incredibly significant that a group of British campaigners at the end of the 18th century, a century that for the most part had seen enslaved Africans treated as commodities, as property, that uh, abolitionists began a campaign to end the slave trade with the the, the logo of and slogan of, of Am I Not a Man and a Brother? And so there's a there's a humanitarian revolution that takes place in in Britain surrounding this movement at the end of the 18th century, and very very different perspectives on 
enslaved people and 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 Africans as part of that movement, seeing them as as human beings, not as items of property. That intellectual and cultural shift is really important. But if you want to see, if you want to understand why it is that uh, the the slave trade is abolished in eighteen oh seven, then th- there's a lot else going on besides just a, a moral campaign, uh, and the debate includes discussion about what's happened in French Saint-Domingue, which uh, becomes the independent nation of Haiti in 1804 after a huge slave revolt. Now, that features very heavily in the debates that lead to the end of the slave trade in 1807. And, I mean, just briefly to illustrate why this is quite complicated, the sorts of arguments that are combined with the humanitarian arguments by Prime Minister Grenville when he introduces the abolition bill in 1807 is to say, well, it's better that we abolish the slave trade in our empire because it might help us to avoid the kinds of slave uprisings and revolutions that have torn apart the French empire, that have created the the, the Haitian revolution. In other words, the slave-run plantations in the British Empire will be more secure. He argues that they're less likely to experience revolts and revolutions, which he associates with the arrival of of new African labourers, that that's more likely to happen if we keep the slave trade than if we abolish it. So it's a question that's really tied up with a lot of really quite complicated arguments about the future of the plantations, the future of slavery, and the, the the Caribbean colonies, as well as um, humanitarian arguments about um, the moral outrage of the slave trade. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Perhaps in the popular imagination, British people have been more interested in abolition than in, in slavery, because it's a much more uplifting story. And it's one that fits much more happily with the narrative of Britain as a nation that's dedicated to principles like freedom and liberty. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Was there also resistance from enslaved people within the British colonies that, that helped influence this decision? Absolutely. This is one of the great fears of the political classes in the early 19th century when the slave trade is abolished, that, that they really recognised and, and Haiti gives them the, the example that they're so fearful of. They recognise that enslaved people might take things into their own hands and rise up and rebel. And they actually do. We see a huge number of slave uprisings in, across the British Empire. Um, and a, a number of those take place in the early 19th century after the abolition of the slave trade. So Barbados in 1816, Demerara in 1823, and then Jamaica in 1831 through to 1832. Really big slave uprisings that help to shape the debate that leads to emancipation in the British Empire. So that's always a part of this discussion, of this conversation that's going on about the, the future of the slave trade, the future of slavery. Um, it's not just about white abolitionists in Britain saying... Um, well, this is wrong, we should abolish it. It's also a debate about, well, what might happen if we don't take action? What's the potential here for things being taken out of our hands as, as white legislators and enslaved Africans in the colonies themselves take action and, and rise up? So always the possibility and potential of slave rebellion um, is, is a very active part of these conversations. Slave trade was abolished within the British Empire in 1807, but slavery itself carried on for another quarter of a century. Why did it take those extra years before slavery itself was abolished? The abolition of the slave trade in 1807, as I've suggested, it's about the trade across the Atlantic, but it's not about slavery in the colonies. And whilst a number of abolitionists are looking forward to the time when perhaps slavery itself might be abolished, the intention of the abolition of the slave trade in 1807 is not to act as a stepping stone towards full emancipation. Parliament, when it takes that decision, in fact, is taking a decision to try to shore up and protect the plantations and the institution of slavery. They think that slavery will be more manageable without the slave trade, that it will somehow be more sustainable to have a system in the colonies whereby planters are encouraged to better look after the enslaved Africans on their plantations without having the slave trade, which of course was 
constantly replenishing the plantations with with new workers. So the slave trade through the 18th century is a part of the business model of the plantation. And it means that planters can accept that they have it written into the way that they do business, that enslaved people will die and that deaths will outnumber births and that they can rely on the slave trade to to fill those gaps or to expand their operations. So the slave trade is part of the slavery business in that sense. And Parliament in 1807 ends the slave trade in the hope that slaveholders in the Caribbean will reform the way that the plantations are run so that enslaved populations become self-reproducing and that slavery will continue, but that it will be different, that it will be... um, more sustainable, less likely to be under undermined or destroyed by slave rebellions, and that uh, enslaved populations will reproduce themselves, and so the planters won't need the slave trade to, to do that. So 1807 is about changing slavery. It's not about abolishing slavery. And so Parliament works with that model all the way through until the 1820s. And in the 1820s, under abolitionist pressure, Parliament begins to move towards a policy of gradual abolition. But gradual abolition has no time frame to it. You know, it could take years or decades. So the position in the 1820s is that Parliament is in principle opposed to uh, to slavery, but has no sense of when it might actually come to an end. And actually, the, the, the final ending of slavery in the 1830s is brought about I would say by two major transformations, although again, the picture's complicated by all sorts of other things. But one of those is uh, a radicalisation of the abolition movement in Britain. The other thing is a huge slave rebellion in Jamaica, which really forces the argument. And uh, as the, the, the famous Trinidadian historian Eric Williams puts it, the, the slave rebellion in Jamaica gives Parliament a choice to make. You know, do you want emancipation from above or emancipation from below? Uh, because this is likely to happen again. So do you want enslaved people to seize their own freedom or do you want to administer it from above through Parliament? And, and of course, Parliament chooses the second option. And so the 1830s sees a gradual dismantling of, of slavery in the, the British Empire. So that's quite a long answer to your question. But... Um, Ultimately, I think that it's it's a case of 1807 being about the abolition of the slave trade and it taking a lot longer in a very complex process for the, the abolition of slavery itself to, to take place. Now, as many listeners may know, slave owners were actually compensated by the British government after slavery was ended. Why did the government feel the need to take this step? Property. I mean, this is, this is absolutely central to the ideology of all parliamentarians, you know, Whig or Tory in the early 19th century, that uh, the property rights of of anybody, including slaveholders, needed to be respected. And although some abolitionists at the time pointed out, you know, this is this is a very distasteful idea that a human being can be an item of property. And yet still, slaveholders made this argument, and in, in many ways they make it successfully, that enslaved people are items of property. And Parliament 
accepts that argument by the slaveholders and chooses, therefore, to compensate them for their so-called lost property. So this is really entrenched in the mindset of the times. It goes back to thinking about the, the slavery business in the 18th century and the ways in which that grows up supported by the British state. You know, Planters are encouraged to go out to create plantations in the Caribbean in the 17th and the 18th century. And enslaved Africans are treated as items of property. And so that principle, um, through the, the really hard lobbying of slaveholders, is, is hardwired into the, the abolition of slavery in the 1830s, that enslaved people are items of property. And so in order to uh, emancipate them, it's necessary to compensate the slave owners. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of the, the, the central features of that uh, legislation that's passed by Parliament in 1833 that uh, slaveholders will receive financial compensation. So I, I guess that the formerly enslaved people didn't themselves receive any compensation, but do we know what kind of happens to them next? What happens to them once they become free? It took a long time for enslaved people in the Caribbean to become free. So the, the, the date of the Emancipation Bill is 1833, but the full emancipation doesn't come until the 1st of August 1838 because another part of that Emancipation Bill is the apprenticeship system, the so-called apprenticeship system. So the Emancipation Bill that's passed in 1833 has three main parts to it. One is to end slavery. The other is to compensate the slaveholders. And a third is to provide for this intermediary period of apprenticeship. Now, that's a period whereby enslaved people are still compelled to work for the, the slave owners. And they work for the slave owners for a set period of time each week. Uh, and beyond that time, they're able to earn wages. So they're not fully free. They're still doing forced labour on the plantations for the, the vast amount of time in, in their, their, their working week is spent on the plantations working for former slaveholders. And those plantation owners do what they can in that intervening period to get as much labour as they possibly can from the enslaved people who are now, of course, termed apprentices uh, under this system. So it's after the Emancipation Bill in 1833, it's a long road still to emancipation, uh, which takes place in 1838. Now, moving the story on a little bit, do you feel that the story of Britain's involvement in the slave trade hasn't really been told properly before? And, and if so, why? I think it's, it's coming out more and more, the, the, the history of, of slavery in the British Empire. And I don't think it's always that you know, we didn't know anything about it because and I mentioned Eric Williams, and he's writing in the, the 1940s about Britain's involvement in slave trading, about the slave colonies. So there's been work on this, but I think it's intensified recently. We've got more and more understanding and knowledge of these really complex parts of British and, and wider Atlantic history. I think, though, that perhaps in the popular imagination, British people have been more interested in abolition than in, in slavery, because it's a much more uplifting story. And it's one that fits much more happily with the narrative of, of Britain as 
uh, a nation that's dedicated to principles like freedom and liberty. Uh, and the heroes of the, that story, people like Wilberforce, are people who can be celebrated. And o- often it's quite a straightforward thing to celebrate them as, as wonderful patriotic Britons who did a wonderful thing. The, the history of slavery is much more difficult. It's much less uplifting. It's incredibly important. It's a really significant part of the formation of modern Britain. And yet I think it's often something that's that, that's forgotten because it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. People don't like to confront this really dark and and frankly, for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of people, a deeply upsetting history. And so it tends to get forgotten, I think, in favour of, of the more uplifting story of abolition. So we're speaking now following the removal of the statue of Edward Colston in central Bristol. On a more general point, what do you think the best solution is for the many statues of people involved in the slave trade that, that still stand around Britain? I mean, there have been various arguments for r- removal, contextualisation. Some people say we need to keep them up as a reminder of our history. Do you have a preferred option? They're not really reminding us, I don't think, of, of the history, because there's not a lot that you can learn about the past from a statue, particularly the statue of Edward Colston, because if I remember rightly, that statue stuck up at the end of the Victorian era. Um, and we probably don't know very much, and I don't think the statue maker probably knew that much about what Edward Colston looked like. So, I mean, my question would be, what do you actually learn about history, do you think, by looking at a that statue? And I'd say pretty much nothing. What would you learn about the history of slavery and the sugar trade and the West India docks by staring at the, the uh, statue of Robert Milligan that was taken down from, from there in different circumstances also this week? Nothing. You know, you, they're just statues of of individuals who I think otherwise people don't really know very much about them. Colston is very much tied up with the story of Bristol and he's become iconic in Bristol for for various reasons. You know, he's he's a philanthropist as well as a, a merchant, including heavy involvement with the Royal African Company and the slave trade. But I just don't think that you'd learn that much about history from the statues. And one of the things that uh, a colleague of mine in in my department at the University of Southampton, Charlotte Riley, who wrote a piece on this recently, reminded me about reading her work. We've learned a whole lot more about slavery uh, and the slave trade through the removal of these statues and the debate that that started than we would have done otherwise, just by ignoring these things or just letting them be part of the landscape. And that really is what history is about, you know, that the statue doesn't do anything. It just sits there and people don't really learn that much from the statue or the inscription on it. But what's happened in the last few days with the the controversy around these statues is that people have started to talk about not just the statues, but what they mean, what they represent. And that's what I'm interested in, you know, is, is having that discussion, uh, having that discussion about the really complex and interesting histories that surround these parts of the landscape. And one of the things that I think I would like to come out of what's happened with the removal of Colston 
and Milligan and all of these other statues that may or may not come down is that we think a bit about what else could go up. What else might go in those spaces that better represents modern Bristol and the people of, of contemporary Bristol right now in 2020? What could go up at the West India docks that would allow for an informed conversation about the history of that site? Those are the things that I hope will happen next. So rather than getting too focused on these particular statues and the circumstances in which they've come down, but what comes next? You know, what, what, what are we going to put there? Who's going to decide what goes there? What kind of conversation and discussion can we have about making something of these places and exploring and understanding the history that they represent? Beyond those who actually traded in slaves, there are a number of historical figures who expressed support for slavery. And one of those was actually Horatio Nelson, who you wrote about in our magazine a couple of years ago. So I wonder, how do you think that should affect how we think about those kind of figures nowadays? Well, again, I think Nelson is complicated. And that might sound like an evasive comment, but actually it's it's not intended to be evasive at all. It's I think it's something that's intended rather to be in the spirit of having an informed conversation about Nelson, who he was, what he believed, and the times that he lived through. Because, you know, Nelson is somebody who was a great friend of slaveholders. He was married on a plantation. He married um, the niece of a very prominent British Caribbean slaveholder. He expressed extreme opposition to William Wilberforce and the campaign for the ending of the the slave trade. So that's part of the story of of Horatio Nelson. It's one part of it, of what is, as we know, an extremely colourful and and, and complicated and varied story of this uh, particular naval hero. So what I would hope is that we rather than getting fixated on the question of was Nelson good or bad, because, of course, he was complicated. <laughs> he was, I mean, that's, it seems to me a, a fairly ridiculous thing to, to try to, to bottom out. You know, was he a saint or a sinner, a hero or a villain? Well, come on, you know, everybody is complex. Everybody has different sides to, to who and what they are. And that's absolutely as true of him as it is of anyone else. Certainly, though, he was a defender of the slave trade at a time when many Britons were opposed to it. And that's part of his story. But what I think is really interesting about him and other figures as well is what can they tell you about the times that they lived through? What can they tell you about the nature of that debate about slavery at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century? And one of the things that I take from what we've learned about Nelson is that ideas about the future of Britain and what it means to be British were up for debate then, just as they are now. Uh, And so Wilberforce and Nelson could vehemently disagree and debate their particular vision of the future of the British Empire. Should it include the slave trade or not? Just as right now, we're debating what should the future of the country look like? You know, where are we going? 
And that's interesting to me, that you can use these these debates in the past to understand that, yeah, these things are disputed, they're contested, they're debated, and that goes on. Uh, you see it in the debates that are surrounding these statues today. What should be there? How can we create a space in the centre of London or Bristol or wherever else that represents who we are and where we want to be going? So in all of those sorts of ways, I think it's much more productive to think about the, the complexity of history and the character of debate and to try to understand it than it is to sort of point at these totemic figures and say, you know, were they good or bad? There's much more interesting work to be done than that. That was Professor Krista Petley. You can read an article that he wrote on Nelson and the slave trade on our website now at historyextra.com forward slash Nelson hyphen slavery. The toppling of the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol has prompted vigorous debate about whether such statues of historical figures still have a place in public spaces. We caught up with the historian and broadcaster Afwa Hirsch, who's written extensively on this subject, for her personal take on the issue. I think that what happened in Bristol is symbolic of what's happening in the world. And what I mean by that is that for the last three years, I have been one of many people in Britain who has been talking about the need to acknowledge the racist past that these people we venerate in statues represent. And there have been conversations, conferences, meetings, articles written. And what happened this week is that people stopped agonising over it and just tore it down. And that really represents change. I think that the tolerance level for preserving the status quo is evaporating overnight. And I personally find that refreshing because it's become increasingly clear to me over time that that this was just a way of repeating the same things but not really being listened to and I think that action sometimes does speak louder than words um there is no case in favor of Colston he didn't do anything good he's remembered because he gave money the proceeds of enslavement murder exploitation he gave some of that money to the city of Bristol and so they put up a statue of him more than a hundred years after he died. It wasn't some pure historical moment. It wasn't even a likeness of the man. It was just a nod to the fact that he paid them. And I don't think there is any justification for putting someone like that on a pedestal in the middle of one of our great towns and cities. That was Afwa Hirsch. Do let us know your thoughts on this subject via our social media channels at History Extra. You can also hear more from Afwa on re-examining the legacies of historical figures in a podcast interview she did with us back in 2018. You can find that at historyextra.com forward slash challenging hyphen British hyphen heroes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when I'll be speaking to David Carpenter about the medieval king Henry III.